Welcome to the Black Alert Podcast, your melanated reference for all things Star Trek across all four quadrants. Today, the bridge crew are joined by John from the I Quit Star Trek Podcast for Black Alert Podcast's 13th episode. Today, we'll be tackling colonialism and imperialism in Star Trek. Hold on to your butts, or whatever phrase of your choosing. Hi, John. Hi, John. Hi, uh... Thanks for having me on. I am excited and terrified at the same time, as per usual when I talk about stuff. <laughs> it's a big topic, this one. I'm look, quite looking forward to getting into it. And I'm glad I mean, I it's easier when you, when you look at it from the perspective of we're going to be dragging Star Trek again, but this time we're dragging the Federation. <laughs> Easy way yes, yes, we're statue wigs. First, let's have it understood what colonialism and imperialism is. That's definitely a good place to start. Yeah. yeah. John, you want to take that one since, you know. Sure. Uh, well, the differentiation seems to come in two senses, which is that colonialism is the active form of direct expansion. So it is, it is your seeking out new territories. It's your gaining new land. It's, 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 a, it's a flag planting. Whereas imperialism is more encompassing and imperialism is not just a flag planting. It is the... It's the office. It's the merchant in Hong Kong. It's the imperial agent in the mountains of the Himalayas. It's, in other senses, it's the world. It's the guy from the World Bank in Sierra Leone, or the commun, or the Soviet cultural attaché in West Berlin. It's all encompassing. It's invasive, and you. It is very different force to colonialism. In sense, often they're confused and construed, but I think. If you want to understand one of the others, it's that like colonialism is the it is your it is your manifest destiny to use the American example. Whereas your imperialism would probably be better idealized by something like British India, where you are it is this two-way system between the locals and the people who are coming into control, as opposed to colonialism, which is you create a blank slate and make it yours. That's at least how I've understood it and how I tend to understand it in my head and writing. With that being said, how does the Federation fall into these? And what is the first instance? So we can start with TOS when, because I feel like Kirk was like, what is the prime directive? Oh, that doesn't apply to me. So it would move to the next generation where that was a, like a key thing for part, the prime directive. Well, Picard ignored the Prime Directive a few times. Yep. And so did Janeway. And Janeway Cisco a lot. Too. She, Janeway was like, Prime Directive? Nah, I don't need that. Um, <laughs> Cisco did it a bit, too. Uh, so it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, it seems like it's talked about, but so many of the main captains that we see are like, whatever, they throw it out the window. For those who need a little refresher and their memory what is the prime directive so it's like no starship may interfere with the normal development of any alien life or society united federation of planets general order one this is the thing is there's a loophole to that because there's the sub clause which is mentioned that you the prime directive does not apply if there has been previous interference oh which is best exemplified in a piece of the action the you know your the goon one in TOS or a private little war, which presumably we'll talk about more because that is maximum imperialism. Obviously, we know where that exists because it's your plot. It's how you get. It's your angle for the plot. But that is an excellent representation of how imperialism justifies itself, because you say we have these rules, but we create an exemption to them because we believe this exemption allows us to uphold the rules. So thus, the Federation can justify going into places because it's just re-establishing the norm. And it, it's self, you know, it's how they go to sleep at night. And that's a fundamentally accurate, I think, representation of how imperial societies go to sleep at night. Uh-huh. They, have, they create rules to say why they're good. And then when they break those rules, they create circumvented rules to say it's okay. I agree so. with that because in, in every situation, no one believes that they're the bad guy. Like, everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. Everybody thinks they're on the side of good. They're on the side of justice. You know, from from a certain perspective. For which... me, when I start thinking of colonialism and the Federation, I always think about, okay, we're out to 
seek out brave new worlds. But in that instance, soon as we find a M-class planet, the first thing somebody wants to do is put a colony down. Or we find these planets that can be M-class and terraform them into a place where we can plant our flag and put our people here in the name of exploration. Or it becomes a tool because you think about the Bajorans in DS9. Uh, they were in the process of joining the Federation, but really it became more of a priority when they discovered the wormhole. So Federation has a presence on the space station. They're in conversations with Bajor, one as a sort of protective measure for the Bajorans post Cardassian occupation, and also as a way to protect their research into this new Gamma Quadrant, their exploration of this new Gamma Quadrant, in which they've also established colonies in someone else's space. And it goes back to the primary reason why people colonize resources and land. And with a dilithium-driven society, we often see them in a hurry to associate, colonize, and be around the societies that have something to offer them as explorers. Sounds familiar to me, but, you know, <laughs> sound, look, this sounds very much like America. So uh, why, that's one of the reasons why we don't see places like Puerto Rico, Guam being not being allowed statehood, but being held on as a territory. You don't have anything to offer us, so you can't be in our group. Sorry, not sorry. Oh, you can pay our you can pay our taxes though. Right? <laughs> That's what kills me. But I'm gonna drag the Federation. How long did they sit by while the Cardassians tortured and pillaged the planet of Bajor and what they did to those people, the occupation, the labor camps and all that nasty garbage? But oh look, y'all got a wormhole, y'all got something you can we can use. So yeah, we'll come help you out. Really? So y'all sat around 50 years not doing nothing? Just that, that really, that, you know, you, you're right, the Federation did sit around 50 years, and, you know, plenty, there's a lot, that's, you know, say what you want about the portrayal of the Bajorians, but it's an extremely strong position of the writers to take to actively condemn them, basically condemn the Federation for doing that, by showing us what the Cardassians do across the introduction of TNG and DS9, to be like, Federation fucked up here. But it, especially, I'm thinking, that reminded me, in the fir- in Emissary, when Kira turns around to Cisco and goes, I don't want you here, you shouldn't be here, you're just here to explore. And that is even before the wormholes we discover, before they know it's there. Her immediate reaction is, you're just the same person. And that comes into the other, you know, it's the thing about imperialism, the, that no matter what the Federation's intentions are, whether they are good or not, it is intrinsically exerting an immense amount of influence on Bajor. If they had come in earlier during the Cardassian War and liberated Bajor, I'm fairly sure that Kira would have turned her phaser from the Cardassians onto the next red shirt she saw. And that's the thing about DS9's discourse as imperialism versus TNG and TOS. It's quite happily happy to turn around and have that discussion about why the Federation is there and why that's not a good thing, why that could not be a good thing. And I think it wouldn't be able to actually have those discussions if we hadn't had 20 years of Trek being okay with its colonial tendencies before that. We hadn't had 20 years of the Federation being built as this pseudo-colonial, anti-colonial, colonialist power. Without that build-up, without, you know, what we see of it, you know, what was seen as fine in TOS and TNG, but we, with 50 years of context, think is, you know, clearly colonialist. Without that, DSI would not be able to give us its incredibly scathing attack on the Federation. You know, just better narrative. Yeah, I mean, right. it's definitely a good narrative. That's for sure. And we, I do appreciate that they kind of went back to that in Deep Space Nine because we do see it towards the tail end, what's going on with Bajor, the Cardassians and all that in TNG towards the end of that show. And we get some inside perspective on it because we get Lower Decks, we get um, Rolaren introduced as well. And it's like, wait a minute, wait, 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 something major has been happening in a certain part of space and the Federation is just kind of be like, eh, because they had their own issues with the Cardassians already. And, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, so y'all have already been in a fight with the Cardassians. And it's it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, 
well, if you've if you've been in a back and forth with this particular faction for so long, what have y'all really been doing? I have a question. Is it exploration or is it divide and conquer? Some of us play some of the Star Trek games and you always see, you know, this is the Empire, this is the Romulans, this is this, and those lines, and if it's straight over here to get these resources, it's an issue. So is it exploration or is it that militarized form of conquering can it not be both though i mean you think about it especially in ds9 and i feel like we're going to probably cover ds9 and maybe enterprise a bit in this discussion but if you think about how you know we get to see the federation walk a new planet through its system of joining and in a lot of ways they talk about some of the things that needs to be done in Bajor, Bajor society, Bajor politics, Bajoran culture in order to make their their membership in the Federation possible. And so in a lot of ways, they are, I don't want to say forcing, sort of not giving them the choice to maintain <laughs> their cultural distinctiveness and a new ideology they're giving to the Bajorans and other member planets when they join. Mm. I feel it's, it's and like I know some, there's some people not gonna like this. They're 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 running around the, and they're they're colonizing, they're, they're colonizing other planets. It's not so much that hello, we are this group of people and we would like to have an alliance with you guys and individual culture planet group of planets that are all one people. It's hello, we are this group of people and we want you to join our group of people. We want you to adopt our policies, our way of running governments, and in some cases, our religion. It's it's very much giving me British empire all over the world. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, John. John. Sorry, John. But no, but yeah, I, I, I hate to say I'm, it, but you no, know, that's that's what I'm getting. That's that's what I'm getting. Okay. I'm interesting because I agree with that for a different reason, which I will get to, I think. I, I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, it, it comes to the point of defining who is worthy of joining us and who's worthy of protection, who's worthy of advancement, being selective about which groups are okay and who are not, which obviously creates negative stereotypes about certain groups, the thought of the alien, you know, who's who's deemed to be the most efficient with their resources, who can provide the Federation with what we need. But I mean, that's that's nothing but exploitation to me. It, it feels like a one-way street. I agree. There's a lot of romanticizing the coming of the Federation, how they portray and how they hold their delegates and the rules. I mean, we've seen multiple episodes where the Enterprise is hosting the delegates because they want to join the Federation. And through that entire session, you see uh, how they might not be civilized enough for admission into the Federation. But we also see a lot of highly intelligent beings telling the Federation, fuck off. Yep. Sure Errand of Mercy. Right. Errand of Mercy. Yeah. Like we Errand talked of... about that episode. Kirk comes in and he's like, oh, these are these are primitive beings. You know, why don't you act the way we want you to act to resist the Klingons? Do this. This is oh, and you don't want to do it the way that I want? Well, I'll go do it for you. Okay. Yeah, Errand prime, it's about prime directive. Interesting one. Because it's you know, it's we, everything about the Federation. Is you know, is the one where we fight. We put the first episode of the Federation is put opposed to another power. It's the introduction of the Klingons, and it's a really nasty introduction because the Klingon core comes down. He's like, "You don't do what I'm doing. I'm going to shoot five hundred people. And I'm going to shoot five hundred more. I'm going to keep doing it until you tell them." He's a he's a proper goose stepping Nazi, and that is our first introduction to who the opposition to the Federation are. And I think that's the problem, that's the difficult thing about this, is that the world, the galaxy the Federation exists in is unbelievably dangerous to the small minor power, to the single planet society. If you are a planet on the Klingon border, your choice is the Federation, which will come in, mess around with your laws, 
So you can, but then afterwards will probably leave you alone. It will alter your society, and whether that's you know you can have an argument, but it will do that. But then afterwards, it will not. It will leave you alone. Generally, you might get a replicator out of it. And your other options are the Klingons who practice slavery and um, rule over people with governance, or the Romulans who, you know, well, nothing about the Romulans seems nice. You know, they're great. They're just or the Cardassians who we know exactly what they do. Or the Dominion. This, this is the problem with, I think, the setting as well, which is that the Federation is idealizing good because none of the other options are great. You know, yeah, there's no counterbalance to, well, there's this other place over here that they just let anybody join. We don't necessarily have to change all that much. They just want to know, hey, you're interested? You are? Cool. Sign this paperwork, and um, if you need help, let us know. Federation doesn't necessarily roll like that. I think it would would be very interesting to see uh, someone operating kind of within the same within the same uh, mindset of, you know, we just simply want to explore. We'll help you out if we can. So you you're right. You hit on something fairly interesting there, John, because we don't really see another Federation-esque organization that's a counterbalance to them. What's the other thing that is interesting about that the, that point about subsumation into the Federation is that how the Federation is tackled is very different if you compare the original series and the original series films with TNG and beyond. Because oh. in the original series, the, you know, the key Federation episode relevant to this sort of things like Journey to Babel, Amok time, private little war. The Federation is not all encompassing. It's not reaching the Federation we see in Kirk's time. It's very. It's only. It's not. It's not got a lot of reach. You know, they go down to Vulcan, and you know there are plenty of customs there that the TNG Federation would not let in. You know, Kirk has Spock has to fight someone to death as part of his marriage ritual, which um, it's not very. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing they let in. And then you have. In the, the Wolf in the Fold, mm. which is you know, the flesh, they go to a flesh pot planet, which is an incredibly colonial trope. But that's, you know, that's quite clearly on the fringe of Federation territory. And Kirk is always is like to Scotty and McCoy, we have to be respectful of these people. We have to do what they want us to do because we don't have the power here. Or um, the Cloud Minders, when they go to this planet where there is a nobility who live in the clouds. And the working class who live in mines. And Kirk is like, we can't do anything. We can't oversee this. I mean, he does because he's Kirk. But there are, the TOS has such a different attitude to what the Federation means. It's a much more fragile institution. It's less intrusive. And I think that's, but it's still inherently colonial because they are going for resources. They go to Ardana for, for minerals. They go, there's Devil in the Dark, where they go. And they, you know, they've, that's one about killing natives at the end of the day, devil. The horter is the planetary native. And they go and it's about that thing of not realizing what you're doing to the local environment. Circling back to what Dre said about not having a lesser of the two evils. I feel that when we enter the des- the discovery phase of storytelling, we, A, you see the Federation is no better than any other nation. We got attempts for mass genocide, spies, spies, and most spies. But we also get the, they now have to be about their word when rebuilding this federation. They have to rest on this prime directive morals because they're not powerful enough to swing that military weight that they had once, once upon a time. Yep. I agree with that. Yeah, that's totally that you hit it. Because we, and that's what's interesting about what Disco did, going so far in the future, and all of a sudden, the the Federation is a shadow of its former self. It, as a matter of fact, the Federation is something to be feared. Because we hear Ren talk about it. Oh, that's how we scare little Andorian kids. Do you want? Do you want to go to Federation? 
the camp, do you want to go any anywhere near the Federation? No, they didn't because, you know, the Federation was seen as this shadowy organization. No one really knew anything about the Federation or Starfleet. And it was just one of those things. It's like, nah, we good. Even no. when they get back to Earth, Earth is like, um, Federation, what are you doing here? You need to leave. We don't want you here. But yes, it's exactly what it was. I would ask the question then. So, like in TNG, TOS, Enterprise, Earth is sort of the central representative of the Federation. You, you think about everything we we view about these other alien races are quite similar to what we know as human beings, uh, particularly American human beings. But in a Federation without a centralized species you know can the federation be different can it be different than how it's represented in prior series i feel there's two issues going on two issues a it's still some humans in charge that ain't shit (laughs) i ain't gonna say what color they are (laughs) but it's some humans involved that ain't shit And secondly, for the Federation to be this military presence, to be the big, the bad, and the ugly, and have Section 31, why are they always being infiltrated by another or lesser species in high ranks? Because the Federation ain't shit. There you go. (laughs) I don't know about... And nobody notices this. Like, I don't know about lesser species because... The founders managed to get pretty high up there, and I wouldn't consider them a lesser species at all. Not to say that, quote-unquote, lesser species weren't also there, able to do the same thing. There's a whole lot of air quotations with lesser species, <laughs> species going like, on. Like, y'all can't <laughs> so see, y'all there's know. bunny ears all but over the place. But here's the thing, no species. one even bothered when they went through the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant to find out anything about what the politics of that region are. Nah, exactly. Ferengi sent people from there. Ferengi Empire there, the Federation went through, Bajor had a cl- uh, a colony there, you know, so even the, the Bajorans are colonizing planets in this new quadrant, or this new accessible quadrant, and no one gave it any thought. It's kind of like colonizing planets is just instinctive in Star Trek, like it's what you do. You're right, Marisha, it was oh. a gold rush. Let's that was get gold over rush. there. And plant poles as soon as possible and start getting them resources, boy. Let's get the resources. Let's get the dilithium. Let's get the class M planets. Like, let's get it all. Like, they didn't think about who was already there, what politics, what treaties, whatever were already established there. It was, I'm going to claim as much as I can and worry about everything else later. And what happened? War. The thing is, though, is... If I remember correctly, the, the thing about the Dominion is that they were deeply uninterested in contact with the Alpha Quadrant until the Alpha Quadrant was somewhere they wanted to be. Like, it, they were, the Alpha, they keep, they, it's not like they arrive and they know the Dominion is over, they don't give a damn. They are pushing out, and as they are coming into contact with people with the Dominion through its fringe, and the Dominion is just deeply in, uninterested in discourse with them until the moment the minion's like, we want that planet, you're on it, we're going to get rid of you. And this happens in the Gemma Dar. So it's that question of when two empires hit each other, what happens? Because at the end of the day, if we're talking about comparisons to the Federation, the Dominion is probably the best anti-Federation from a sort of po- political structure view, as opposed to Borg as a moral group. And they are just, their whole society is built on paranoia. The paranoia of the founders, who are deeply uninterested in the sort of things that Federation have built, which is expansion and self-improvement and discovering new ideas, you know, at least in you know an ideological term. So they're deeply uninterested in all of that. But they also it's also dangerous to them. But the Federation is still encroaching on their territory. But did the Federation know that? Could the Federation have known they were doing that until the first time the Dominions, the Jem'Hadar turned? I would offer that uh, that's not the first time the Federation has hit a roadblock. Usually what happens when they hit a roadblock, if they're more powerful, they say, okay, you know what? We're going to set up some beacons. We're going to say, don't go in this space. And we're going to move around. (laughs) But I felt the interest because of Deep Space Nine and the wormhole, they were like, 
well, we can't lose this profit. We've heard stories of whole beings saying, leave my children alone. <laughs> and Starfleet being like, you know what? Pick your shit up. Everybody, everybody <laughs> on the ship. Everybody <laughs> on the ship. Play some beacon. Come on here, crush. Get the replicators. <laughs> we're gonna put a little put a little rope around it and move on. Hey, yo, yep, we're gonna oh. put a warning beacon here and we rolling out. <laughs> Get left if you want to. Is that the flexus go down? Oh no. I just remember the Romulans. The Federation is built on a war against Empire. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because its foundation myth is that the humans were fought a war they should not have won against the Romulans. The Romulans should have wiped them out, they should have wiped out the Vulcans and the Tellarites and the Andorians, and they didn't. And the Romulans lost so badly they got stuck behind the neutral zone for 300 years. Yep. And that is the foundation value of the Federation is and it's interesting that it's a damn shame that the Enterprise got cancelled when it did. We didn't get the wrong little war seasons they I, said they thought about doing. When the Federation met the Romulans and they saw that cloaking device, 300 years, we didn't talk about it. They can cloak? Nah. All right, we'll <laughs> stay on our side. Yeah, and that was, the, that was the crazy part. Like, the Federation agrees yeah, we're never going to do the whole cloaking technology thing if you stay over there. And we see that come up in TNG all the time. It even comes up in Deep Space Nine because what happens in Deep Space Nine? Gotta kill a motherfucker to get it. (laughs) Right! (laughs) Right! Right? So we see the, well, actually, if you go back and you watch that episode, Pegasus, it was like, what? The, The Federation... Couldn't have been experimenting with cloaking technology. Yes, they were. As a matter of, of fact, they, they were. <laughs> yes, the Federation they had the best was like, writers. The, the the Federation was like, forget just cloaking technology. We want to be able to phase through matter. I was like, okay. Well, the way okay, the Federation. It was a mess. It was the way a mess. Stuff happened works. That probably happened by accident. They're probably like, hang on, we went through a wall there. <laughs> that we didn't mean to do that. <laughs> No, actually, that that was the, that was the technology that the Federation was secretly working on, because that episode is where Riker is like, "Oh, I gotta talk to my old captain again," and it's uncovered that the reason with the the Pegasus happened uh, the way it did is because they were experimenting with this next generation step up type of unintended. Yeah, pun truly intended with that one, y'all. <laughs> but they were working on this improvement on, on cloaking technology with not only being able to cloak, but being able to go through through solid matter. Like, they were in an asteroid, and the incident happened, and the Pegasus is fused with the asteroid because the cloaking device failed. But we get a cloak in the Defiant. And Deep someone Space had Nine. to die. Like we had to this essentially, I mean, Cisco, I like DS9 for the interesting aspects of this. I mean, because this is an alliance based on subterfuge. You know, Garrick has to go- slide something under the table, murder someone, and you get your alliance you, that you need to repel this other enemy, this this enemy that's basically overwhelming your quadrant that for most of your time, you assumed is a peaceful one. You just have to deal with the Cardassians, but that's all you have. That's all you have beef with over there. And you don't have to worry about them. But I mean, like Star Trek, when it tries to have the discussion of conflict, like it's often based in murder. Like the way they deal with these conflicts is someone has to die. Somebody got to and that's one of the reasons why I like DS9 so much. And I'm, yes, I'm one of those people who DS9 is their favorite and they're always saying, you know, DS9 is the best and don't come at me with anything else. I get that. But besides that, when you have DS9 and even Voyager with Janeway, you have captains that are doing these things involving the Prime Directive, but they sort of end up in these gray areas. And what that's showing us is that you know, the Federation isn't necessarily always the good guy. They're not necessarily always doing the right thing. That's, you know, it's not that black and white. 
and you have, you know, Cisco and he sits there and he says and he looks directly in the camera and he's like, I, I did what I had to do and I can live with that. I can live with that. Utopia is very, in that episode at the end where he's like, if I had to do it again, yes, I would. And I was like, oh. I think that's, you're right, is TS9 is not afraid at looking the viewer in the eye and going, freedom has a price and it's just, there is a cost of doing business to living in a free society. And I think that's sometimes I think why it's easy to be disappointed in the Federation because it holds itself to high values. And I blame TNG for this because TOS at no point turns around and goes, the Federation is perfect. It's quite happy to say, to have Kurt go and do have the cost of doing business. Quite happy to have him beam down to a planet and get this close to giving them muskets and fighting a proxy war. But TNG isn't, and I think it suffers for that. But it's DS9 makes this point, especially in the Dominion War, that if you are going to preserve a free society, you have to do some really horrible things. And we have historical evidence for that. We know the cost that comes with freedom. You know, we we but we bomb German cities into rubble for it. And fundamentally. It, was that a good action in itself? Probably no. Is you know we punish people for that now. But in that moment, it, the choices were made to preserve a free society. And I think tackling the Federation's relationship with Empire through that concept of we know there is a price to pay for freedom, but what is too much to pay is something that I'm glad Discovery did. I'm glad it did that in season one. It went there is two. There are fundamentally two high prices to pay for freedom. You know. I, went and rewatched Discovery Season 1 last December, and it was such a powerful point where they all turned around to Cornwall and went, that's just too pro- that's just the price we're not willing to pay. Having come from a, you know, the mirror universe, where they were basically surrounded by a society that killed as a hobby, to turn around and go, no, this is too much, was an incredibly powerful thing to do. It was an incredibly strong thing to do when you were doing the first piece of Star Trek in 20 years, basically. Turn around and have your characters go, there is too much, a price, too much of a price to pay for freedom. Okay, so we established that TNG has romanticized colonialism and imperialism, and DS9 and Discovery has to fix it. Going with the, with the idea that the Federation ain't shit, I believe with the Prime Directive, going back to the Prime Directive, it gives them full encompassing willing to be ain't shit. Oh, oh whole, and let's not willing forget. willing to let a whole planet explode and melt. Because, oh, Data, you shouldn't have been talking to them. That's against the Prime Directive. Yeah, I remember that that episode, too. Uh, what was that episode? Uh, Pin Pals. Mm-hmm. Pin Pals. Because Data was the only one that picked up that transmission with that little girl, Rojaka. And they were like, wait a minute, what are you talking about, man? The Prime Directive and intervening is a difficult one when it comes to this question of empire because... History is eternally full of incidents where people should have not been there. And there is equal incidents where we have to ask, why weren't we there? For every time you should not be somewhere, there is an incident where we should have intervened. And I think the Prime Directive and the Federation's relationship to it is bad because it punishes incidents where you should intervene while also making it socially acceptable not to. And I agree with that. But I also think we should do, when it comes to the question of the Borg, you know, the Borg are not, I mean, I just uh, I have no qualms with not being nice to the Borg because fundamentally the Borg are deeply interested in cooperation. They're not a society. They're not cap- the whole point of the Borg is that they are incapable of discourse. They're incapable of peace. They have no concept of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, you shouldn't engage with people who do not see you as equal. You shouldn't engage with people who do not share your values who are just going to exploit you. That line right there, hot fire, hottest of hot fire. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's the thing is about this, you know, we should, that's the thing, whenever someone's like, why doesn't the Federation engage with the Klingons in TOS or with the Dominion or with the Kardashians? Because the Kling- they're not societies that work on the same level. They don't share the values. There's no room for cultural exchange or peace on a level. I differentiate between Klingons in the original series and in TNG. They're different societies, <laughs> I think. They're just written very differently on purpose, obviously, but yes, yes written differently. Yeah. So, Federation. Ain't shit. Yeah, because uh, uh, here's the other. Here's the 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 main example of the genocide, and we see it in Deep Space Nine. The way they infected Odo. The yeah. way they had that man 
secretly poisoned, so to speak, and made him patient zero for that whole degenerative, you know, disease or whatever. That's that's sinister right there. And it's just one of those things that goes back to what's the price we're willing to pay? Well, they they shove off responsibility in a lot of ways with uh, Section 31 by saying that Section 31 operates outside of anybody's knowledge, out of anyone's knowledge. But that's not how these organizations work in reality. There is somebody, you know, in the government of the Federation, whether or not it's the Federation president or however their their government system works, there's someone with the knowledge of what Section 31 is doing. It had to be authorized by Federation council members. And because the Federation isn't this unilateral power in and of itself, they have a whole council, they have multiple representatives. So for them to use Section 31 as a scapegoat, it's like, that's really fucking convenient. Mm. How about owning up to what it is you did as an organization? It's the atom bomb question at the end of the day, isn't it? It's are we okay with that level of human incident for a course? Are we okay with that? Well, I mean, that's establishment of fear and power. I mean, that's that's basically what that is. I mean, the whole arms race that we we've dealt with most of our lives or heard about is who's Whose thing is longer? Who's who's gonna press the button? You know, like, are you gonna do it? Or are you gonna do it? How much money are you gonna spend? Which other power are you gonna eliminate? Okay, we're gonna be allies today, but it's all about fear, control, power, propaganda. That's basically what that is. I want to say that a lot of the the narrative of Star Trek, like especially with the usage or, or the reliance on the Section Thirty One arcs uh, across multiple series now, you know, DS Nine Enterprise has Section Thirty One. It doesn't call it that, but it is Section Thirty One and Discovery. And we have to ask ourselves if they are what the writers look to as a way to keep the Federation looking clean and what we should aspire to as a people. Uh, the, so the way that Star Trek presents the government or presents the Federation as an organization is the one that they want the audience to gravitate to without looking at what John called the price of freedom, right? They don't want the audience to look at that and go, oh, well, utopia is messy. Like getting to utopia is messy. And these are things that we have to keep in mind whenever we're moving towards the future that we hope to get to. Well, for me, that takes away the some of the, the realism, right? Because to get to a utopia, to get to a more perfect society, it is going to be messy. And to sit here and say, well, we're just going to have a shadowy equivalent to the, the Obsidian Order and the Tal Shiar as, you know, the scapegoat for all the bad stuff we do. To me, it, it it works. It works from a storytelling standpoint, obviously, but realistically, uh, maybe not. I think the issue is that even at this point in time, the price is still being paid to do business. I think like I, my comment doesn't really tie in, but I think this is it goes back to that saying, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And you think the Federation would be the one that, you know, thinks and weighs all the, 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 the benefits and the detriments and goes, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. But then they come along with that second part of the prime directive and says, oh, but we can do this. So we're gonna. And a lot of the time you think, you know, people would weigh more about whether they should or shouldn't do it, but they always end up doing it anyway. And like, that's the issue. It's that question is that on the utopia thing and this question of, if do we have to keep paying a cost to do business, paying a cost for further freedom? I'm depressingly going to say yes. I think that's just a part of how we do things. I mean, as we're people of color, we know that the journey from the journey from <laughs> sorry, I struggle with that. stop or go. Um, the journey from the plantation, from the slave ship to emancipation. To, through Jim Crow to the Civil Rights Act to BLM, it is a journey of the cost of doing business. Every step, it's, you know, you have anti-slavery in Britain, but that is tied into a new form of imperialism. You have emancipation in America, but that is tied into the frontier 
and that you have the double V in the Second World War, but that is tied into the extension of Jim Crow into the 50s. It is, there is this cost of doing business to the sustaining and expansion of freedom. But we, who's free? Yeah, who's, who's free? free at the end of the day? And that's the, only, we, that's the question, yeah. Are who's we, free and who isn't? Yeah. Are we freer than our parents before us? Yes. But that's not good enough and it never will be and we cannot excuse the cost of doing business in the past or the future cost of doing business just because we are better off than a generation before us. We have to reflect on what price we're willing to pay and what price is too much. And I think Star Trek's gotten better at asking that question and answering it. Mm. Especially since TOS gets on, hits it on there with head on a really bad episode because the private little war ends with Kirk about to give these people muskets, to let them fight a war for the Federation. And the last moment he goes, it's not worth it. There's a price I am personally willing too high to pay for the Federation's freedom. And that's, I think, until DS9, that's the closest Trek gets to answering that question of what a price is too high for freedom. And DS9 says, has Section 31 as a price is too high for freedom, but cops it out by making it Section 31 and not Starfleet. By having it be shadowy and evil and not the people we think are good, it makes a, it does a massive cop-out. And both seasons of Discovery, all three seasons of Discovery, turn around and go, there is a price to freedom. There is a price too high. Maybe we were willing to pay it in the past. Maybe in a moment of panic, we set a price that was too high. We can turn around and say that we shouldn't have done that. We can turn around now with luxury and say there are things we shouldn't have done. I would like to bring in Picard season one. We can't blame... Section 31 for the first contact with the Androidian race. Even if it's influenced by the child she are, the Federation in fear made that decision. And, and you clearly see that it was a knee-jerk reaction that the Federation had because of what happened on Mars. But to say all synthetics are bad, we're going to ban them, we're going to ban the research... No, no, it's not. When you have a group, and, and, and I emphasize that it's a group as large as the Federation, with as many member planets as the Federation, when the Federation says no, that is a big shift in a lot of the known universe, the Alpha Quadrant, the Beta Quadrant, how much the Federation takes up of that space. That's, you know, hundreds of planets that are suddenly, you know, you can't do this anymore. And who knows what kind of goings on and research was happening on any one of those particular planets that could have, you know, helped somebody, save somebody, help that planet, help that planet's economy, been a part of that planet's religion. We don't know. But all of a sudden the Federation, and I very much doubt that, you know, they took into consideration the things that, you know, those planets might have going on when they just said, no, this is a knee-jerk reaction. This happened here, far away from whatever it is you're doing over there with your synthetics. But now you can't have synthetics anymore. But that's the human-centric nature of the Federation. The humans take the priority in this organization. And we see that across every series. And so yeah. whatever impacts humans in, a, in an episode or in an arc it impacts everyone else. It's just what it is. I think the synthetics battle is one of the best things Picard did. It is fundamental. I think it was a very bold of them to just quite directly go, Federation screwed up here, and they live with the consequences of it, and they don't want to back down about it. I think what the interesting thing to do from this point on with Picard would be to do the next step, would be how does a political society fix a mistake like this? How does the Federation do its own reconstruction? How does Reparations! It do exactly. How does it repair? How does it do for... It would be interesting to watch the writers do an ideal society's reconstruction do its 40 acres and a mule answer this question of how you rebuild a unitary society having torn it apart 40 but parsecs also, and a shuttle that's <laughs> i like that i like that a lot because that's that's the sort of thing star trek should do it should it should take an issue that like this it should present our heroes making mistakes and big ones and going how should a society fix it? How should it try, at the very least, to change things for the better? And it's also going to be interesting to see what they do with these XBs. I just would like to mention that, uh, make no mistakes, what happened to the Borg is genocide? Because 
we had to stop them first. I just want to. But isn't but isn't the Borg itself in a, a tool of cultural genocide? There is no there is no distinct culture, different cultures within the Borg anymore. You become a singular, you become a singular culture, and that's it. They they are the destroyer of cultures. And that's what that's what drives the fear, though, because it's that fear of losing individuality, but at the same time, when you're when you're within an organization, um, whether it's the Federation, the Romulans, or whoever, you're still going to be have a little bit of your culture, your identity, your individuality taken from you. Not to the extent of the Borg, but it's still there. Bouncing off of what Dre said, when you have the Borg, you know, as the Borg, as an entity that is literally a monolith, like when you become Borg, you are Borg. We are the Borg, we are a collective, you know, one mind, one sound. <clears throat> what? Where do you go from there? Like you have their organic, but they are also synthetic. And then when you come to an X-Borg, not only are they organic and synthetic, but a lot of them, a great number of them, used to be from species that belong to the Federation. Like, what category do you put them in? Like, obviously, they are now a race unto themselves as X-Borg, but you know, what rights do they get in, like, in the aftermath of what happened with synthetics? What None. happens to the ex-Borgs? None. Ex-Borgs was getting harvested like runaway <laughs> slaves for organs. They have no rights. And that's a problem. That was a problem. Huh. I mean, that, this is the thing about the, the XP and the Borg and the artifact is that they exist in that state of precarity because the Federation decided they weren't interested because the hegemon that prided itself on being the beacon of liberty of the galaxy that freed practice from bringing in the weak, the poor, the huddled masses, turned around and went, we are politically uninterested in doing that job anymore. We are exhausted. And you consider the decade, the decades that happened before the synthetic ban, you know, it's Wolf 359, it's the Dominion War, it's, you know, static nemesis. The Federation had a pretty tough 15, 20 years before the synthetic crisis. And their reaction to it was to just not face it. They were exhausted and they turned away and it had its consequences. Picard demonstrates those consequences in what happens to the XBs and how they are harvested in the precarious state of the Romulan refugees. And that's not such a fantastic representation of what happens when you turn away. Because you have the XBs who are this, you know, they are the fragile, they are the people no one cares about, they are exploited. And they are in that state because the only power in the quadrant they could have turned to for help decided they were deep, they were just too tired. Let's bring it back a little bit to talking about colonialism. Like when you look at that and the similar situations in the modern day, you have these, you know, big G8 countries that go into uh, developing countries. They say, you know, we're here to help you. And they come in and they bring their weapons of war and they bring in their religion and they say, we're here to stabilize you. And they do all what they came to do. They come in and they take the resources that they want. And then once they've done what they need to do, once they've gotten what they need to get, they disappear and they go back to their first world country. But what happens to them? Like what in the aftermath is not another first world power. It's a developing nation that now doesn't have any of the resources to support itself. And like they, it's destruction, like what happens to those people? They get left even further behind now. And like that's literally the same thing that's happened to the XBs and who knows however many other species in the Federation. When I think about the Federation and colonization, it's like Grace said, it's all, they come with, the Bible and the gun. They come with the Federation philosophy. And yeah, I got them phases ready. Sure. And then you become you become just another drone in their in their organization. I mean, uh, think about it in terms of the Bajorans and the prophets, right? Mm. These are a whole people that they need. But here's the Federation saying, Oh, those wormhole aliens over there. Don't nobody give a shit about your religion. Those aren't those aren't gods. Those are aliens. And it is what it is. And that's how we're going to call them in our 
in our libraries and in our documents, we're going to say, oh, well, the wormhole aliens and in parentheses, the Bajorans gods, because there's no respect for these other cultures and what they bring to the Federation. It is only like Cisco only gets to be the emissary only because they need something from the Bajorans. The Bajorans are a they're a tool in the war against the Cardassians. That's all they are. But it's proven because when we have the episode when where Keiko is like, well, I'm not going to teach that. I teach science. And they're like, but you're teaching Bajoran kids. We're asking you to make this allowance because you're, you no? Okay, but Kai Wen went in and was like, you know what? Your little school, <laughs> it don't exist anymore. I <laughs> Look here, my child, okay? <laughs> my child. My, my child. See, you know here. things were about to go down when, when Kai Wen hit you with a my child, okay? Ooh, game <laughs> on, game on. When it comes to the Federation, I think the problem is, is that the Federation is built on this principle of further improvement. It is there's a very American principle. I mean, the, speak, the thing that I always think with the Federation is, um, so in the film Gettysburg, which is a bad film, Jeff Daniels does this speech about what America should be. He says, you know... America should be free ground, all of it, not divided between slave and state free, all the way. And the line that I get is it's not about the land, there's always more land, it's the idea we all have value, you and me. And that's how the Federation views itself, that it can keep expanding because there's space for it. And irritatingly, they're right about that because space is very empty. And Star Trek gets to cop out a lot by going to planets and being like, there's no one here anyway. You know, one of the key, like, they could go to an M-class planet and there are no natives and there are no sentient life forms and they could, it's a clean slate. And when you were trying to talk about colonialism, that's a cop-out. But I think it's one, I think these, there's a lot of cop-outs they make on this because Star Trek's original sin is colonialism. It is built on Westerns and Horatio Hornblower and your stories of seafarers and white men's burdens. And I think in the long run, that's fine because we get to deconstruct that. We get to deconstruct it like we're doing now. We can deconstruct it on screen. And we get to engage with it. We don't get to shove it under the bed because it's so intrinsic to what Star Trek is. It's so intrinsic to what the Federation is that you can't look at it and go, that looks like this. This single mental idealist looks like this. Why does it look like that? How can we change it? How can we make it better? So that's why, that's, and with Bajor on his own, that's where we get to go, what is this price we're willing to pay for these things? How willing are we to pay prices? And that's why I love this question of Star Trek and colonialism and imperialism, because it means that we can't avoid it. It's such a pervasive issue in our lives, especially as people of color. We can't avoid it. And we get, it's, an, it's, a, it's a parable. It's great parables. And it makes it much easier for me to talk about complicated imperial concepts. Nothing for that. But it's difficult, and I'm glad it's difficult. I'm glad they don't make it easy to talk about this. I'm glad that we get it frustrates us. I'm glad the Federation is a frustrating body to talk about. I'm glad we have to juxtaposition democracy with the price we pay for it, because that's the real world, and we can't pretend it isn't. I'm glad we get to ask, the Federation makes us ask questions about why we intervene and why we don't. I'm glad that the writers want to do that. I'm glad they want to do it in the past. I'm glad they'll continue to do it. And, you know, I, this took a lot to, a lot of dragging today, quite justifiably, but, and I drag for a living. I'm a historian of empire. I do, I quit Star Trek. My entire life is pain. But I think we draw, we draw such, there's so many fantastic lessons to draw from it, from the first episode to the most recent one about how we can change the world we live in, how we can, do good things, what the wrong things to do are. That's important. So I guess I want to kind of go to uh, Enterprise for a bit because it is the pre-Federation oh, era. <laughs> like, I think it's important. I know, seriously, I do think to this, this topic, it's important to look at what was there before and how it impacts what we've gotten after. I mean, clearly it was made after all of, like, four other series... It has the earlier shows as a reference, but I think there are some interesting aspects of the Federation that can be found within Enterprise. Like a lot of what the Federation ideals, the prime directive, even the naming conventions for the types of planets are Vulcan. These are all Vulcan 
inspired aspects that we are seeing throughout these shows. But we don't really tie a lot of what these mostly human crews are doing in the Alpha They're and Beta stealing. Quadrants. I wonder who they learned the whole exploitation I wonder, thing from. I wonder hmm. where they learned to take everybody, somebody else's stuff. Uh, the Vulcans suck, man. The Vulcans <laughs> allowed it to happen. How can you, how can the Vulcans deal with the Klingons with a Vulcan hello and then let the humans come in and be like, yeah, you can take all our... Even, though, even the Vulcan hello is a cop. <laughs> Even going like, oh, the only way to talk to these people is to shoot them in the face is a cop out. Right. I mean, but the way that the narrative deals with Klingons, though, you know, that's that's the the context behind Michael's doing it is that okay, well, if we're watching the other series as the audience, we're going okay, well, this is how to deal with the Klingons. Now, for us, it makes sense, but you know, you look at the show and you're like, well, maybe that's not the way to do things. It's going back to the assumption of the people and the, the sort of savage nature of these people, and they can only be dealt with with violence and through violence. Uh, it's just this is a more complicated topic than I <laughs> thought we were going to get to. I mean, because you, you know, you have yeah. this moment in Enterprise where Paul and Flocks are talking, and Paul structures the the seek out new life and the exploration thing as quote. Uh, their mission is to make contact with those who humans consider new life and new civilizations, right? You know, like, so the Vulcans, even though they are the the foundation of what's going on in this organization, it's all about human priorities. Yeah, the Vulcans took a whole different approach. They were, we're just going to observe. And humans were like, well, we want to, we want to shake hands, we want to break bread, we want to do, you know, we we want to do cultural exchange. Did that? Did they though? Because the Archer was, was going through and putting like all his personal, his personal beliefs and his personal like ideologies on a bunch of fucking cultures. Like yeah, that was that was Archer's way. If we're being really real, like the the hu- humans or Earth in general was far too young to be joining, let alone forming a federation in the first place. And they only got in by sheer luck. Thank you, Zephram Cochran, for doing your experiment on that day. But you have the humans coming in contact with the Vulcans, and the humans are literally only just discovering warp travel. When the Vulcans, not only have they mastered it, they're out here exploring and looking at other new worlds, checking out to see if they're ready. The Vulcans already had their whole philosophy grounded and centralized already enough to go out and explore. And then you have these really young and frankly primitive humans with their, you know, this is, you know, my first spaceship that's capable of warp doing their first run that didn't even go that far. No, suddenly in the Federation, not only in the Federation, but at the center of the Federation. And again, I realize the humans have to be the center of the Federation because, you know, we're humans and the whole point of Star Trek as a show is to see ourselves reflected in the future. But if we're being really real, the Vulcans should have been leading that. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm going to do something very dangerous now and disagree. The Vulcans practiced a enlightened, self-justified form of indirect rule. An indirect rule is one of the many things that is still plaguing post-colonial Africa, because it was the British policy that the people, when we have discovered this tribe, or for example, the Biafrans in Nigeria who live like this when we found them in 1890, the best thing for us to do is to make sure they don't progress from where they are right now. We are going to put them, and what that means is we project, the British projected what they thought that society was idealized. That meant that the British were like, we're going to find tribal chiefs and we're going to be, make them magistrates. We're going to do this. We're going to give them these. And they enforced their the idealized image of what these societies should look like traditionally. Which meant that in a lot of cases, people who had no power beforehand were suddenly magistrates or tax collectors because the British had decided that's how the society was meant to progress. And they decided that, you know, the consequences of that were Local schools were shut down because they were not within tradition. That local systems of power were subverted because they were not within tradition. That 
ways of organization, whether it be ways of cultural organization, whether it is birth rituals or marriage rituals or medicine were disrupted because they were not believed to be traditional. And the language the Vulcans use about humanity in the 22nd century is that they say, you're not ready for this. You cannot, the world is full of dangers. You are not ready to be part of galactic society because you are too young. You need to progress through the run of civilization. You are a younger nation. And that is exactly the language the British and the French and the Belgians and the Portuguese and the Americans use to justify holding on to their protectorates and staying in mandates. It is, it's a Vulcan, it's a Vulcan man's burden. All right. So I have no sympathy for the, really, for the Vulcans being like the humans aren't ready yet because their entire understanding of progress is based on their own history. I'm like, like you're not, you're not necessarily disagreeing with me, John. I'm just saying no. that in <laughs> terms of like with the way things happen, I think it's very interesting that humans ended up running the show. And yes, if the Vulcans had ended up leading the Federation, I don't doubt that ex- everything that you said is exactly what would have happened. But then we'd be sitting here dragging the Vulcans as imperialists and colonialists instead of the Federation. Like, that doesn't really change much. I would say that, uh, because I'm assuming you're using, John, like Enterprise, right, as what you're saying about the Vulcans. I would say that the narrative both agrees and disagrees with that notion because the, the, the show does show how not serious about the political implications of what they're doing in that space or what Archer does when he encounters new species. Like, they they are... They do show that in some cases there is some truth to the idea that the humans aren't ready. But I do agree what you're saying about the way that the Vulcans sort of interact with what they think of as lesser species. The whole issue that really, in my opinion, drives this home is when humans, when we finally come across the Romulans, right? Uh, Because they are the very first threat that we really see. In terms of humans leading the way, the whole thing with the Romulans and coming across them and setting the foundation uh, for the Federation, that didn't happen before. And it's talked about. They're like, you know, we've been trying to do, everyone was trying to deal with the Romulans in their own way. It's also worth remembering that human society had been put in its place like a century earlier, like enterprise and that society we see with Archer is they're the products of the third world war which it yeah. lasted about 20 years and killed 100 million 200 million people they are the products of a society that learned what happened when you don't work together properly so shout outs shout outs shout outs because i think we i have a shout out grace i have a shout out and this is a little bit off track. I don't know how many of the, 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 the Trekkies, obviously Trekkies that are listening, or the non-Trekkies that are listening, I don't know how many of you also play The Sims. I play The Sims. And I would like to shout out Sandy at AroundTheSims.com. By the time this episode goes to air, by the time you're able to listen to it and download it, this particular pack will have been made uh, free and available to people who don't subscribe to her Patreon. But Sandy at Around the Sims was kind enough and talented enough to fulfill a request I made many, many months ago. Sandy has lovingly crafted several Star Trek-themed drinks to put in your game. So if you are a simmer and you use custom content, please go to Around the Sims and download these drinks so your Sims can have these drinks. They have their respective cups, they have very beautiful bottles, and they have Easter egg descriptions that just so happen to be written by me. Thanks, uh, Sandy. Shout out to Grace, who's already here for her mention in the local paper. And big up in Black Alert Pod. If you don't know the beautiful, illustrious, and wonderful purple hat Grace of Black Alert Pod, please, please stop by her page, check out the article, because she is awesome and she deserves all the hugs and loves that we give her. Tia, what you got? I'd like to shout out Cody922, at Cody922 on uh, Twitter for the comment about Mabus uh, <laughs> when discussing episode 11, when we discussed the Kazon and the Jim Hadar. Uh, 
that was a pretty damn good quote that had my mind working more uh, towards some of the discussion that we were having. I'd also like to shout out Sean for his amazing comments and all of our other listeners. Thank you so much. And John, anything from you? Oh, yes. Um, uh, oh, so just in case you don't know, I do a Star Trek podcast with Olivia called I Quit Star Trek. We Every week we have a guest on from Star Trek community or from celebrities, sometimes just random people. Usually we talk about it, we find them for the Star Trek and we talk about why it's horrible. Or if not why it's horrible, why it's interesting, why it made us stink. You know, usually we have a lot of fun on the way. We had Kier on this week to talk about faces. I'm still recovering from that. It was that. But um, Olivia A. Eel for the podcast. So you can, if you go to Quick Star, at Quick Star Trek Pod on Twitter, you can find that video and you can come and talk to us there. Um, if you want to talk to me, you can find me at Bad Socialism. Uh, I, the three key things I talk about are Star Trek. I also talk about she But I also talk a lot about Black history That's and Black military history. So come talk to me about that. You know, want to learn something, want to be horrible about the British, I'll do that as well. Obviously, we deserve it. Um, do I have any shout-outs of my own? I would also probably shout Sean out, because he listens to all of our podcasts as well, and he's a sweetie, and I love him. Aww. With that being said, we've done a podcast, so just keep checking, just keep checking, just keep checking. Peace, love, and... Star Trek. <laughs>